Amen. Amen. Good morning and welcome. Hey, before you're seated, if you haven't already come up and gotten the elements for communion at the conclusion, I would encourage you to do that at this time. If you already have the elements and are going to partake with us, you can go ahead and be seated. I want to welcome those of you that are joining us online as well. And for you as well, if you would like to partake with us of the communion table after and at the conclusion of today's Resurrection Sunday prophecy update, we'd encourage you just to have the elements ready at the ready so that you can join with us as well. All right. Well, what, what, this is the day, man. He is risen. All right, now we're going to do a take two on this. And this time when I say He is risen, you say He is risen indeed. Now you got to emphasize the indeed. It's got to come from your toes. Or not. Okay, you ready? Wait for it. He is risen. Yeah. There you go. All right. We, we are off to a great start on this Resurrection Sunday morning. So we're going to do two services today the same way we usually do with the first being the prophecy update, albeit a special prophecy update. And then second service is usually a verse by verse study through the Bible and the sermon. But today we're going to uh, have a topical uh, Resurrection Sunday sermon and look at the paramount importance of Christ's resurrection and the profound implications of what it truly means to us and for us. I know that was kind of a lengthy way to say what maybe others could have said in a shorter way. But um, in other words, just what the resurrection means to us today. And I hope that you're able to stay and those of you online join with us. That'll be live streamed at 1115 a.m. Hawaii time. And then those of you that are watching by way of YouTube and Facebook, uh, you may want to go directly to the website at jdfarag.org. There you will find the uncensored and uninterrupted entirety of today's update. And with that, let's begin. I hope and pray that the prophecy update today on this Resurrection Sunday will be a blessing and an encouragement to you, especially for those who are discouraged and struggling and just really need hope and encouragement. So as I inquired of the Lord concerning today's update, I sensed that He was sort of redirecting my heart back to one of the most, if not the most, powerful prophecies in all of the Bible, the Passover prophecy. 
And this because the fulfillment of this prior prophetic event points to the ultimate fulfillment of the final prophetic event, which is literally about to happen at any time now. And this final prophetic event that I'm speaking of is none other than the end of the age, which is preceded by the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, then the commencement of the seven-year tribulation, and subsequent second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the seven-year tribulation. This is the final prophetic event on God's prophetic clock. If you'll kindly allow me to, I'll explain from prophecy in the Bible, both how it is and why it is that we are now on the cusp of this final prophetic event. Simply put, prophecies fulfilled in the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ at His first coming, point to the nearness of the rapture and subsequent second coming. Now, (laughs) hear me out on this, please. Please know that I'm keenly aware of those who, on one side, believe that we're already in the tribulation. And those on the other side, I'm sorry if I'm pointing at you. I'm not pointing at you. I'm just pointing at you. So maybe I just need to keep looking down. So you've got those on one side believing we're already in the tribulation. Then you have people on the other side who believe that we're going to be around for generations before the tribulation. Thankfully, neither are true. Spoiler alert. (laughs) And as we're about to see in the Word of God, from the God of the Word, we can know that we are at the end of this age at this time in human history. And the reason is, is because God does not want us to be ignorant concerning Bible prophecy. Replete throughout the pages of Holy Writ, you'll read where God says, I want you to know what's going to happen before it happens. So when it happens or begins to happen, you'll believe that I am the I am. And believers will look up and lift up their heads because your redemption draws nigh. He wants us to be ready. He wants us to know. He wants us to be prepared. He wants us to be watching. He doesn't want us to be ignorant. Oh, I feel better. I was kind of, maybe I had to get that off my chest. I want to begin with the very first prophecy in the Bible found in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15. 
This is not only the first prophecy in the Bible, so too is it the first mention of the gospel, the good news of salvation in the Bible. Actually, Genesis sums it up in three ways in the first three chapters with the creation of man, the sin of man, and the redemption of man. Genesis 3.15. Now, God is pronouncing a curse on the serpent in the garden after he has just deceived Eve and they've partaken of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the curse now for the serpent is verse 15 of Genesis 3, where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Stop right there. That is a prophecy of the virgin birth. What do you mean? Women don't have seed. They have egg. Is this too? I don't want to give you a reproductive anatomy teaching here, but right? The woman has the egg, the man has the seed. So her seed means virgin birth. Prophecy number one. Prophecy number two, all wrapped up, packaged together in just this one verse, which is why it's often referred to as the Proto-Evangelium, which is a word that makes me sound smarter than I really am. Basically, Proto-First Evangelium, the evangelical, the first gospel. The first time the gospel is mentioned, the principle of first mention, and it's right here in the first book of the Bible. It's a prophecy about Jesus. In fact, Genesis 1-1 all the way through is all about Jesus. It points to the person of Jesus Christ. So here, right out of the chute, we have a prophecy of the virgin birth. Now, watch this. He, the Savior, the seed of the woman, the virgin birth of the Savior of the world, he shall bruise, crush your head. That is a prophecy of the coming resurrection. And you, serpent, shall bruise, strike his heel. That is a prophecy of the crucifixion. Did you get that? How cool is that? We got the prophecy about all of it all wrapped up together in just this one verse, Genesis 3.15. Now, let's fast forward from Genesis 3.15 to John 3.16. We've all heard of this verse, right? I think you would agree it is the most well-known verse in all of the Bible. However, and I know this is deeply profound. But verses 14 and 15 come before verse 16. Again, I know that's deeply profound. That's the most profound thing I have. So there you go. Uh, wait, what's in verses 14 and 15? I'm so glad you asked. Jesus is speaking and says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent 
in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, why am I emphasizing this? Why is this important? Again, I'm very glad you asked. Because this clearly rises to the level of Jesus referencing it in the context of the most well-known verse in all of the Bible. So the question becomes, what happened in the wilderness with Moses that Jesus, the Savior of the world, would refer to it in this context? And for the answer, we need look no further than the book of Numbers, chapter 21, beginning in verse 4. Here's the account. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to, the, to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And our soul loathes this worthless bread. Ooh, you mean the manna? Yeah. Uh, you mean the manna that God miraculously provides every day, the bread of life, which is a picture of Jesus the Christ as the bread of life? That, that manna? Yeah. Uh-oh. So what's the Lord's response? Verse 6. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we're sorry. No, yeah, that doesn't, that's actually in the JDV. Sorry. That's, uh, let's get back to the original. We have sinned, you think? For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses, this isn't the first time, prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So verse 9, Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Okay, what's your point? Well, this serpent on the pole was not only referenced by Jesus, it also paints a powerful prophetic picture of salvation found in Jesus. I'm going to just go through this quickly, but just as with the serpent on the pole, the serpent got Eve to look upon another tree, another pole. As with 
the Christ on the cross, Jesus would have us but look upon him who is lifted up on the cross. Because you have to understand, and we'll see this more in a moment, that it was in the shape of a cross. The serpent is a picture, a type of sin. And Jesus died as payment for our sin. He took upon him the sin of mankind. Bronze, a very interesting detail, is the metal of judgment. Silver, betrayal, gold, deity, bronze, judgment. And Jesus took the judgment upon himself instead of us and, in, and for us. Now, this bronze snake that Moses, by faith, is commanded to make in order to heal and save the people, is put, lifted up, and put on that pole in the shape of a cross, just as Jesus was lifted up, put on that cross, and judged for our sin. So again, in the shape of a cross, and everything, by the way, throughout the Old Testament is a picture of this Roman cross before there was ever a Roman cross. Even the example, and we'll see this again in a moment, but even the priests in the tabernacle and subsequently the temple, everything, the wave offering, uh, up, down, left, right, shape of a cross. The pole, Moses, take this bronze snake, a picture of sin, judgment, put it on this cross before there was ever such a thing as crucifixion and the cross. The snake was, now watch this, this is so amazing. <laughs> the snake was horizontal on a vertical pole. Okay, Jesus, fully man, horizontal, and fully God, vertical, restores us to God, fulfilling the law, the Ten Commandments, the first five of which are vertical, and the second horizontal, the shape of a cross. Did you ever see the Ten Commandments that way? That's what they were, a foreshadow, a type of the coming Savior of the world who would fulfill that law instead of us for us, because we can't. I know it, it might jam your gears, but never think for a second that the Ten Commandments were ever given to us for us to keep. How's that working out for you? Uh, I broke all 10 of them. I've even created some more on top of the 10. I can email you the list. I won't. So, well, then what was it given to us for? To show us us as God sees us. The law is a mirror. <laughs> The law of God, the word of God is a mirror that shows us, us in our true condition. So what am I seeing in the mirror? That's, as you get older, mirrors are not your friends. 
So you see in the mirror your true condition, which is why you make all the changes. Oh, by the way, you all look marvelous today. But you've got this, you, you see yourself. What do you see in the mirror of God's law? You're a sinner, 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 <laughs> times 10. You need a Savior, you need a Savior, you need a Savior, you need a Savior. And here comes the Holy Spirit, like that tutor, that, that schoolmaster that takes you by the hand from the law that you've broken and takes you to the Savior who fulfilled it. And you're saved. This was the only way to be saved, healed. Can you imagine you're an Israelite and uncles and aunties and brothers and sisters? <laughs> they're all getting bit by this thing and, and they're dying. You're going, whoa, what's up with this? You're like, Moses, do something, pray. And Moses prays. That to me is, because I don't know if I would have. I would have said, I'll get around to it. Just, uh, you, need to, you guys, you, oh, you come to me now. You weren't saying that before, the snakes. And oh, now you want me to pray. Anyway, that's just me. I, come on, you would have done the same thing. So don't look at me all spiritual and everything. So imagine you're one of the Israelites and this is happening. And this happened, by the way. And Moses makes this bronze snake, puts it on this pole in the shape of a cross and says, you want to be healed? You want to be saved? All you have to do is look upon that. You're going, what? No, what's the catch? You're telling me that all I got to do by faith is look upon that pole with that bronze serpent and I'll be healed and I'll be saved. And that's the only way. It's the only way. So too with Jesus. There's no way to the Father except through Him. He's the door, the only door, the only way, the truth and the life. The serpent on the pole became an idolatrous symbol. For those of you that have been with us in our study through the Old Testament, this was a form of idolatry. They made an idol out of this thing. And so too, modern day, do you realize that the modern day symbol for the medical community is a corrupted, idolatrous version of this pole with the snake, except there's like two snakes, and except that it's not actually uh, a biblical symbol of the cross of Jesus Christ and the finished work on the cross of Jesus Christ. It is a false god, an idolatrous false god, and the worship of the science god, not the god of science. And we've talked about that ad infinitum for quite some time now. This is one of many examples of how everything in the Old Testament points to the fulfillment of prophecy in the New Testament. If you were to ask me what I thought was one of the most fascinating prophecies in this regard, the aforementioned Passover prophecy would have to be it. And here's why. It's a prophecy pointing to and fulfilled by Jesus Christ vis-a-vis -vis the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
the Feast of Passover is the first of seven feasts. By the way, when we partake together of communion, I'll expound more on this because we affectionately refer to the Last Supper, which was the Passover celebration. So it's the first of seven feasts. And interesting word for feasts in the original language of the Hebrew Old Testament. It's the same word in my native tongue of Arabic. It's the word Moad. And Moad carries with it the idea of a sign pointed to an appointed time or an appointment to be fulfilled yet future. Let me see if I can maybe illustrate it. So if I were to say to you in Arabic, I have just said that I have an appointment with you. There's an appointed time set that this Moad points to. So it's a sign. Here's another example. You're in town. You see a sign in Honolulu, says Kaneohe, 13 miles. That is a sign that points you to your final destination, specifically 47525 Kamehameha Highway in Kaneohe. Anyway, so that's, that sign now becomes, in a sense, a moad, because it's pointing you to your destination. And that's what these feasts were, signs, moads pointing to Jesus the Christ, who in his destination coming to earth would fulfill that which these pointed to. I want to kind of go through this again. I know famous last words. I'll I'll go through them quick. (laughs) Define quick. I'm not going to define quick. I'll go through them quick. Don't rush me. But These seven feasts are recorded in Leviticus 23, and all seven of them point to the person of Jesus Christ and were and will be fulfilled by the person of Jesus Christ. And here's how. The first four spring feasts were fulfilled at Christ's first coming, and the last three fall feasts will be fulfilled at the rapture and Christ's second coming. Let's go through this. You ready? Passover, the feast of Passover. That's clearly the crucifixion. Again, we'll expound more on it, but in the Exodus, they would have to take the blood of the lamb, put it on the doorposts of their house, and the angel of death would pass over them. Jesus was the Passover lamb. Jesus fulfilled the Passover prophecy in the crucifixion as the only begotten Son of God. What's the Feast of Unleavened Bread? The burial. Very important and fascinating details in Leviticus 23 concerning this particular feast, because the bread, the second bread, there was three, the second person of the Trinity was buried. This is a fulfillment of the burial of Jesus Christ. First fruits, what's that? The resurrection. So you have the rising up from the ground, the first fruits. And it was fulfilled when Jesus rose from the dead. The first fruits, the first resurrection. And that was a fulfillment of 
this feast. What about Pentecost, or also known as the Feast of Harvest? Well, very interesting. (laughs) They're all interesting. But it was to take place on the day after seven Sabbaths, seven weeks. Seven times seven is 49. Add one day, 50. Five pent. That's where we get pentagram, pentagon, etc. So on the 50th, this feast was fulfilled in the book of Acts. On the day of Pentecost, when they're all in Jerusalem, all people, different tribes and tongues, and, and they're in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. It was on the 50th day after the feast of first fruits. And that's when the church was born, the beginning of the church age on the day of Pentecost. So these are the four spring feasts. Fast forward, every feast from the Feast of Trumpets, the last three are yet future. And wouldn't it stand to reason that if Jesus fulfilled the first four spring feasts, that so too will He fulfill the last three fall feasts, beginning with the Feast of Trumpets. It's the one feast of the seven feasts of which no man knew the day or the hour, because it was predicated upon the moon in Jerusalem. This is also known in Hebrew as Rosh Hashanah. Rosh is the same word in the Arabic, only we pronounce it Ras, the head of the year. It's the new year. And the new year would not begin until the moon was at its perfect place. And usually over a period of time, about maybe three days where you didn't really know. And then when it was, you would sound the trumpet, the shofar. And that was the Feast of Trumpets. Well, many, present company included, see this as being fulfilled in the rapture of the church. Uh, I know that there are many who uh, debate this. I don't intend to do that today. I'm fully capable of doing that today, as you well know. I won't. I will say, (laughs) maybe a little bit I will. Uh, I will say that you don't disturb or dismantle the doctrine of imminency concerning the rapture. The rapture can happen at any time. Even in fulfilling the Feast of Trumpets, with the rapture of the church. The other argument is, um, well, these were for Israel. Well, wait a minute. Pentecost? Sounds a whole lot like the church to me. And by the way, uh, it's a beautiful, magnificent marriage of the church with Israel. Because the next feast after the Feast of Trumpets is Yom Kippur, Yom, same word in Arabic, Day of Atonement. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the seven-year tribulation when the whole house of Israel comes to salvation, which is the purpose of the tribulation. It's for the salvation of the Jewish nation, and they will call upon Him whom they pierced, and they will be saved and atonement will be made, Yom Kippur. And lastly, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, as it's also known, is fulfilled 
in two ways. First, the kingdom age, the millennial reign, and eternity future. Do you see the beautiful order that is here? And interesting, this order parallels the divine order that's outlined in the book of Revelation. Now we've talked about this before. It's in chapter 1, verse 19, where John is told by the Lord to write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after. What is Jesus telling John to write? Past, present, future. Beautiful outline in the book of Revelation, pictured here, starting with past. John, write that which you have seen, that which you were an eyewitness of. Past, the church age. Uh, Pardon me, Jesus Christ crucified, uh, buried, and resurrected. John was an eyewitness of that. I want you to write that. That's chapter 1. And it's a fulfillment again of the feasts, plural, of Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits, just in chapter 1. Look at the order here. Present, chapters 2 and 3, the seven letters to the seven churches, the church age. And we're just at the very end, the Nats eyebrow, I haven't used that for a while, and yes, Nats have eyebrows, of the end of the church age, chapters 2 and 3, because chapter 4 on are all future. So what does this fulfill? The Feast of Pentecost, the church age. And by the way, in chapters 1 through 3, the word church is mentioned 19 times. Hang on to that, because it's going to come into play in a moment. Now, chapter 4, verse 1, so Ah, I'm overusing fascinating. If you have a good synonym, just let me know and I'll try it out. But I don't know what word to use. It's just, it's just magnificent. I already used that one too, didn't I? That's fine. Chapter four, verse one, John is told to come up here at the sound of the trumpet. He's caught up to heaven. Does that sound like the rapture to you? Because everything that he's going to write from chapter 4, verse 1 on is all yet future after metatauta in the Greek, after the things of church history in the church age. So here's what's going to happen after. The church gets raptured. Come up, John, because this is the rapture. Get up here. Trumpet. Boo. Come up. That was a horrible trumpet. whatever. Just come up here. And everything is future. He's in heaven because he's been caught up to heaven. Feast of trumpets. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Everything is future now. And in chapters 6 through 19, you have everything dealing with the seven-year tribulation. And wouldn't you know that the word church is not mentioned even one time in chapters 6 through 19 dealing with the tribulation. Why? Because the church is not in the tribulation. The church is raptured prior to the seven-year tribulation. So there's no church. Wait a minute, what about those other guys that, you know, didn't take the mark and they were martyred? They're not the bride. They're not the church. They're saints. They're saved. We'll see them in heaven. 
They're, wait, they're the ones that get saved in the tribulation? Yes. In fact, it can be argued that the most, I mean, the, yeah, I'm just struggling here. Bear with me. The greatest revival, since that's kind of a big word these days, will happen after the rapture. How about that? We won't be here for it. So deal with it. The, the greatest revival, multitudes, and it's in Revelation. And John's kind of grasping this and like, there's so many there that you can't even number them. Who are they? Oh, you know, they, they are those who have not taken the mark of the beast, have been martyred because they haven't taken the mark of the beast and they're wearing white robes, and they got saved in the tribulation. And the indication is that this is a very large number of people. So what feast is this? Again, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, because at the end of the seven-year tribulation, the whole Jewish nation comes to salvation. So this is Yom Kippur, when atonement is made. And then what will take place after chapter 20. Did you know that that is all about the millennium, as is, I, my memory is correct, Jeremiah. Oh, I better be careful here. I should have looked it up. Could be wrong. I think it's 50. Oh, it's not, not just there. Throughout the book of Jeremiah, which we just completed, a lot of uh, prophecies concerning the millennium, the kingdom age. And this again is tabernacles and eternity future, which is chapters 21 and 22. That's the order, the divine order. Now, I want to talk with you briefly about the stunning prophetic parallel. How are you doing, by the way? Are we good? We're good? Is this cool or what? I do have a powerful uh, conclusion here. Just, I'll, I'll figure it out as we get closer to the end. But in other words, I'm going somewhere with this. Do you see the importance of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and how it points to the return of Jesus Christ, and the rapture of the church of Jesus Christ? So I want to take you through this uh, it, it is stunning. It is breathtaking. It is astounding. The parallels concerning Israel in the Exodus and Israel in the tribulation. Because again, Israel goes through the tribulation and is saved in the tribulation. So hey, hey, give me one second here. I, um, I've only got like 500 more of these uh, charts. So um, in the Exodus, Israel is enslaved. In Revelation, Israel is afflicted. In the Exodus, Israel is oppressed and deceived by Pharaoh. In the tribulation, in Revelation, Israel is attacked and deceived by the Antichrist. In Exodus, you had two representatives, Moses and Aaron. In the tribulation, in Revelation, you have two witnesses, believed to be Moses and Elijah. In the Exodus, Israel calls out to, cries out to God, and he hears. And in the tribulation, during in the book of Revelation, Israel cries out to God, and God hearkens 
unto the voice of their cry. In the Exodus, Israel flees to the wilderness. In Revelation, in the midst of the seven-year tribulation, Israel flees to Petra, where God will protect them for the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation from the Antichrist, who seeks to devour and destroy them. In the Exodus, Israel is delivered. And in Revelation, Israel is saved. In Exodus, the plagues come down as God's judgment. And in Revelation, wrath is poured out as God's judgment. By the way, the tribulation is God's wrath poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. That alone, stand alone, is one of many numerous and voluminous reasons as to why the church does not go through the tribulation. We're not appointed to wrath. This is the wrath of God on a Christ. We haven't rejected Christ. We've accepted Christ. Even more interesting are the similarities with the plagues that came down on Egypt. By the way, Egypt is a type of the world in typology. And the judgments in Revelation, again, they, they parallel. Pictured here is a list of the plagues in Egypt, along with the scripture references corresponding with the judgments in Revelation during the seven-year tribulation. I want to just go through them real quick, and I want to draw your attention to a couple things here. First, water becomes blood. There goes the water source, the water supply. Frogs, not to be confused with farag. This is a very different. Really, you laughed too quick on that one. I'm not. Three, lice. Anybody have that last name? <laughs> Four, flies. Five, watch this, food source, livestock destroyed. Six, boils. Seven, hail. Eight, locusts. Nine, darkness. Ten, death of the first begotten son. I want to draw your attention to this 10th and final plague recorded in Exodus 11 and 12. And specifically as it relates to the Passover prophecy fulfilled, now again, listen, by the only begotten son of God, the first begotten son, the only begotten son of God, Jesus the Christ. Do you see the connection here? Every single one of those plagues was against one of the many Egyptian gods. They worshiped the Nile. They, <laughs> they, <laughs> they, I'm sorry, I'm chuckling. You'll see why here in a second. They worship frogs. Wow. It's like God saying, you like frogs, do you? You like to worship frogs? There you go. Stop the frogs. <laughs> I could have used a different one maybe, but So every single one of them was against one of these false gods of the Egyptians, which is believed numbered over 3,000. And so it was God's way of saying, I am God. Watch this. I am the God of all of this. And when you get to that 10th plague, it's God saying, because they made a God out of the firstborn son, chiefly with respect to Pharaoh, who they saw as a God. So when God 
sends the angel of death to kill specifically the first begotten son, what he was saying is, my only begotten son will be killed, crucified on that cross, and he will die for you. Again, a type of the crucifixion, burial, and even resurrection of Jesus Christ. And again, we'll see this when we get to the communion celebration, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, Let me just bear with me. (laughs) Like in the pole with the bronze serpent being in the shape of and a prophecy pointing to Christ, so too was this 10th plague a prophecy fulfilled by Christ. And here's how I get there. And this is why to me the Passover prophecy is, if not the most, at least one of the most profound prophecies in all of the Bible. The Israelites were to take an innocent lamb before that 10th plague hit. And they were to inspect that lamb for four days. And on the 14th of Aviv, at the ninth hour, they were to slit the throat of that lamb to shed its blood. You don't break the bone. And this presupposes that that lamb has been found to be without blemish, spot, or wrinkle. That's exactly how long Jesus was on trial, four days, found to be without sin, blameless, spotless, without wrinkle or blemish. Then he was crucified at exactly the ninth hour. This is exactly what that lamb, that Passover lamb was pointing to, Moab. So they inspect the lamb four days, and then they would slay the lamb, take the blood of the lamb, and put it on their doorposts in the shape of a cross. At the top, you had a basin on the bottom, And then you had one on the side and one on the side in the shape of a cross. So when that angel of death came, it would pass over them if they had the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their house. They would be saved by the blood of the lamb because of the finished work on the cross before the cross had even been thought of. I love it when God does that. So it gets better (laughs) and actually brings me full circle to the explanation of both how and why we are on the cusp of the final prophetic event. The how is explained by way of the end of the age being that final prophetic event by virtue of the fulfillment of the prior prophetic events. Let me say the same thing in a different way. In other words, all of these prophecies and actually the many others with them have heretofore been fulfilled. So the conclusion is that it points to the final event about to be fulfilled. In other words, everything is right on schedule. God's perfect timing, God's prophetic clock.
That's the how. Now, what about the why? The question of why we're on the cusp of the final event and the end of the age. And I'd like to provide an answer to this and expound on this, but we're going to go ahead at this time and end the live stream on YouTube and Facebook and redirect you to the website if you're not there already. I want to begin by stating what the number one reason is as to why, listen, beyond any reasonable doubt and even beyond any doubt, not just reasonable doubt, beyond any doubt, we're now at the end of human history. Again, I'll go back to what we started with. God wants us to know. God doesn't want us to be ignorant. He wants us to know and be ready for the time of the end. So He's <laughs> provided us with great detailed prophecy about what the world's going to look like at the time of the end. So we'll know, hey, this is the end. Good. It worked because I told you what it was going to be like at the time of the end. And you're looking at your word and you're looking at the world. You're going, what's this? I, I, anyway, that's the best I got. So you're going to have to take that. So wait a minute, Pastor, you're telling me that we can know that this is the end? This is it? Yeah. This is how it ends? Yeah. Wait. Okay. So we're not in the tribulation? No. Uh, we don't have generations. We don't have 50 years? No. Well, that's kind of bold and dogmatic, isn't it? Well, uh, that's all I can say is just, <laughs> I mean, I, I yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's your lot in life. I mean, we're told this is what it's going to look like, and I'm looking at it, and that's what it looks like. So if you want to play it out, even 20 years, you, you, you surpass, you exceed what the Bible describes as the end, certainly in the arena of technology. Because the technology that is described in the Bible at the time of the end is the technology today. Today. And how fast has technology been advancing? Just go back 10 years. How fast has it advanced in 10 years? Do you want to take that out 10 more years? If you do, you exceed the technology that's described in the Bible at the time of the end. I can't get there. I just can't. And that's just technology across the board. Am I yelling? I'm sorry. I, I'm not angry. I'm actually very excited. Couldn't you tell? <laughs> I'm prefacing what I'm about to say this way because we're at the end and the enemy will do everything and stop at nothing to distract us so that we don't know it's the end. And that's exactly what's happening today. In fact, it's, it's forensic evidence prophetically, as far as I'm concerned. The, it's evidenced by the plethora of distractions, particularly here in America. So we don't talk about 
the end, which will be brought about with the end of the current world economy. Well, now there's some specificity here. Yes, there is. Let me explain. COVID, there he goes again. COVID was manufactured as a controlled demolition of the current economy, which will chaperone the entrance of the biodigital global economy. Did you get that? Now, because we've looked at this in depth in prior updates over the last three years, I'll simply provide a brief explanation to sum this up. First, this so-called vaccine was not manufactured for COVID-19. Rather, COVID-19 was manufactured for this so-called vaccine, which they already had. They just needed what we call COVID-19 in order to release it. Now, the reason this so-called vaccine, it's not a vaccine, was pre-planned years in advance and manufactured now was to, among other things, chiefly disintegrate the world economy. And the reason for the destruction and complete disintegration of the current global economy prior to the tribulation is to usher in the one world economic system in the tribulation. Because if you think about it, that's the only way to force the world to be in lockstep as we witnessed every nation on earth in lockstep, never before in human history, and never to be seen again, by the way. That was one of the key pieces of evidence, to borrow that metaphor again, that convinced me beyond any doubt the verdict's in, the jury's not out. This is it, because all the nations on earth are in lockstep and deceived, Revelation 18, 23. You deceived all the nations on earth with your pharmakia, pharmaceutical final solution. So the only way to force the world to be in lockstep with this global bio-digital economy is to mandate it via a verification system. So one's ability to buy and sell will be predicated upon this system of verification, which is precisely fulfilling the prophecies in Revelation during the tribulation. Did you get that? Do you see how that works? Well, we actually lived it, whether you realize it or not. It wasn't that long ago when you could not buy or sell without an M-A-S-K, one letter off from M-A-R-K. You think that's a coincidence? No, that's preparing, conditioning, programming, brainwashing, readying the world to accept not a mask, but a mark. You want to buy food? you got to have this bio-digital mark. We've talked about the patents. And by the way, I've got a couple of things I'm working on right now. I would appreciate and cover your prayers, maybe in an upcoming update. I mean, it is just mind-boggling to me. It is so precisely 
the fulfillment ultimately of Bible prophecy. I just don't know how people don't see it. Do you realize that you will not even need your phone to scan that the mark, I mean the QR code? <laughs> you, no, you just it'll be facial recognition, forehead. Palm recognition, forehand. Because see, what you have on you, everybody don't don't pull your phones out. I know you have it on you. That's all right. God forgives you. But what, what's on you, they want to put in you. By the way, this might be a good time to clear up just real quick. I have to be quick. Don't look at your watches. Th- this question of, well, my Bible says that it's in the forehead or forehand, and my Bible says it's on. It's both. The micro patch technology with the palisades, the stamp, the tattoo, which is actually the word in the original Greek in Revelation 13, it's put on and it goes in. Can we close that file, please? All right. I feel better. Thank you. I want to share with you an email that I received from an online member who I've quoted in prior updates. He has keen insight and discernment that explains how all of this is now coming together prophetically. Here's what he had to say. Hi, Pastor J.D. I hope you are well. I have been watching the recent banking crisis. Did you guys know about this? Well, you're not hearing about it uh, because they want you to hear about everything but this. Did you know uh, July 1 is the target date for the central banking digital currency? Did you know that? Did you know that Russia and China, Xi Jinping and uh, Putin decided we're done with the U.S. dollar? The dollar's already done. They, we just don't know it yet. And it's even worse than that. My wife asked me, she said, you're going to be doom and gloom on Resurrection Sunday. I said, not second service, but just first. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry, not really. It's, I have to speak the word of the Lord. So, <laughs> Okay, so he says, I've been watching the recent banking crisis, and I wanted to give you my perspective on how I believe this ties in with Bible prophecy. In the first email that I sent to you, I detailed a 12-step process that I believe was being followed in order to create a controlled demolition of the global monetary system. It's interesting to acknowledge that we can't see in advance all of the twists and turns in our predictions of where we're headed. While we know the end point, the path to it is not necessarily clear. I did not see how the predictable banking crisis would be directed in order to consolidate power in the multinational corporations. I believe that the banking crisis will continue and disproportionately, listen very carefully, affect small business and specifically food production. Uh, Do you know what they're doing? Uh, Your your food supply, uh, geoengineering, weather manipulation. In fact, my friend that I introduced you to last week who lives in Arizona told me there is unprecedented snowpack on the mountains. That's Arizona. California, it's all pre-planned. They are going to flood California and destroy all of the food supply that comes out of California in that fertile valley, the Tulare Lake Valley. So you got uh, 
it's estimated some 100, this is unprecedented, 100 plus feet of snow. And then the weather manipulation, geoengineering, they warm up the temperatures. What happens? That water is coming down and it's going to flood out and destroy everything in its wake, pre-planned. Now here's the thing, the farmers take out loans for their crops from these banks that are collapsing. So you destroy the, the farms and the farmer, you destroy the banks, all by design. They're in the way. We need to get them out of the way so we can introduce the new way, this biodigital currency that we can control, by the way, and suspend at will. So if your score isn't high, then we can just suspend your account, like a social media account. They can ex suspend your currency account so you can't buy or sell. You see where this is going? He continues, this will further consolidate the economy into large multinational corporations in line with the WEF, World Economic Forum, vision of stakeholder capitalism that envisions an economic and political system that is controlled by a tiny minority in order to control the majority of the population. We know that ultimately the Antichrist will emerge to take control of this system. Allowing a collapse in the regional banking system in the U.S. and globally will disproportionately impact the funding to farmers, resulting in lower food production and higher prices. When you hear the word hyperinflation, what comes to mind? What should come to mind is Revelation 6, verses 5 and 6. It's a prophecy about the hyperinflation that it will take a whole day's wages just to buy the ingredients to make bread. We're there. He says, this, as I detailed in my original email, will be the leverage used on the global population in order to enforce submission to the mark of the beast. Interestingly, Henry Kissinger, remember him? Isn't he like 185 years old now? Henry Kissinger has been quoted as saying, quote, who controls the food supply controls the people. Who controls the energy can control whole continents. Who controls money can control the world. Oh, I get it. So that's how it's going to happen. You just control the money and you control the world. So the banking crisis will be managed in a way that will consolidate the economic activity until they're ready to implement the central bank digital currency CBDC system. At that point, in a true Hegelian dialectic, they'll allow the global derivative market, estimated to be two quadrillion in value, to melt down in order to create the crisis that will spur the population to beg for a CBDC solution. Because your money's worthless now. This CBDC system will likely emerge as a national system, very interesting, and then transition to a regional system. Ten global regions. The ten toes, 
the ten horns, Daniel, Revelation, as national governments are destabilized and ultimately a global system as the mark of the beast. I sometimes use this analogy. You and I get on a train in New York City and neither of us know the route, but only I know the destination is San Francisco. We may go north, south, or central, but the closer we get to the destination, the more accurately I can predict the route because I know the destination. I just work backwards from the destination and try to figure out the most logical path to the economic reality that we see recorded in the book of Revelation. That's how he gets there. Makes sense. So we know what, we know that, we don't know how, but now we're beginning to see how. And not only are we beginning to see how, we're beginning to see that it's now. It's exactly what's happening. Here's the bottom line. The tenth and final plague is about to strike. And it's only those with the blood of the Lamb of God's only begotten Son that will be saved. And that's why we do these updates every week. It's also why we end with the gospel. And it's also why we end with the simple explanation of salvation by way of the ABCs of salvation. What's the gospel? The gospel is good news, that Jesus came to die for you. He was crucified for you. He was buried and He rose again on the third day, and He's coming back again soon and very soon one day. Good news. That is good news in a world filled with bad news. And here on this Resurrection Sunday, what a celebration of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what are the ABCs? Well, just a simple explanation. Uh, the A, it's not a formula. The A is just for admit or acknowledge that you've sinned, because it's then, like we just talked about, when you see yourself in the mirror of God's law that you realize you're a sinner, now you need the Savior. Romans 3.10 says, there is no one righteous not even one. And Romans 3.23 tells us why. It's because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 is very interesting because it sort of packages the bad news first with the good news, because the badder the bad news is, the gooder the good news will be. I know that's not proper English. Please don't email me. But the bad news is there's a penalty because the wages of sin is death. It's the death penalty. We've all been sentenced to death because all have sinned. That's the bad news. You ready for the good news? I sure am. The good news is the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He purchased the gift and gives us the gift, not the purchase, the gift that He paid for in full, cost Him everything, and He gives us this gift for the receiving, freely receiving. And what's the gift? <laughs> Eternal life? Where do I sign? No need for sign. Well, that's actually pretty good for not practicing. That's the A, here's the B, and this is so, so central. Believe. Just like the Israelites, you had to believe by faith and look upon that cross to be saved. 
I mean, that's faith. Believe. You had to believe it. And there were, can you imagine there were those who were like, no, that's too simple. And they didn't believe and they perished. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, we did cover this verse, right? You all have it memorized, right? Different languages and accents and dialects and yeah. Whosoever would believe would not perish. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. (laughs) Again, the jury's not out. The verdict is in. And the sea lastly, and this is the expression of believing in your heart. You confess with your mouth. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And here's why. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And lastly, Romans 10, 13 says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Look upon him, believe in him, call on him. That's it? Yeah. That's really simple. I know. Childlike simple. Aren't you glad it is? Could you imagine if it was complicated? Could you imagine just hypothetically for purpose of discussion, if in order to be saved, you had to know quantum physics? I'm doomed. I'm I'm going to hell, man, for all of eternity, by the way. Wait, I have to know quantum physics to be saved? No. All you got to do is believe in your heart and you'll be saved. Okay. I'm in. (laughs) I'm saved. It's so simple. Today's But God testimony is local, actually. It comes from Linda Jimenez, who writes, May I ask you to pass on a message to Pastor J.D. Farag? I want to thank him personally because I just lost my husband to cancer in September 2022. In the last year of his life, Pastor J.D. helped my husband Pete to turn to the Lord as he just watched Kahlo TV every day listening to J.D. Farag. Poor guy. (laughs) God bless Pastor Farag. Sincerely, Linda Jimenez. Praise the Lord. All right. Well, if you're if you're able to stay, we'd certainly encourage you to. I know I went on long. I never do that, right? So, but um, if you're able to, we'd really encourage you to stay and partake together with us of the communion table. Uh, if you don't have the elements, you can come up at this time, uh, get them, just hold on to them. And as you do, or if you do, I'll draw your attention to Luke's gospel, the 22nd chapter, beginning in verse 14. This is the account that we affectionately refer to. Yeah, come on up. It's the account that we affectionately refer to as the Last Supper, because it is the last time that Jesus is going to be with and eat with the disciples before He goes to the cross. So Luke, by the Holy Spirit, writes that when the hour had come, He, speaking of Jesus, sat down and the twelve apostles with Him. Then He said to them, with fervent desire, 
I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Just stop right there for a moment, just real quick. Think this through with me. Can you imagine? They're celebrating the Passover with the fulfillment of the Passover, the Passover lamb. You know the one? The one that the Israelites would have to take and sacrifice for their sins so that the angel of death would pass over them. No need. He's right here. He's the fulfillment of the Passover prophecy. He's the Passover lamb that was slain, his blood shed in our stead. Is it no wonder that Jesus would say, as often as you do this, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. It's a remembrance, it's a celebration, a commemoration of the greatest deed for our greatest need, a Savior. And, and this word, remember, we're, we're going to read it in a moment. It, it, that's remember. Why? Because we don't. We don't remember. We forget. We forget to remember. We don't remember. And we forget what we were supposed to remember. No, we forget. We live our lives <laughs> without the remembrance of what Jesus did for us. In that he died for us. He paid the price in full for us for the forgiveness of all of our sins. I really, again, want to encourage you, second service. Oh, I can't wait. I want to share with you something. And this is a word fitly spoken, especially for those who are heavy laden and weary, being crushed by the weight of the guilt of their sin. It's all gone. Removed as far as the east is from the west. Remembered no more. Here's what I want you to remember. I remember it no more. I want you to remember why I remember it no more, because of what I did for you. That's what the celebration of the communion is all about. The fulfillment of the Passover in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. So Luke writes, then he again, speaking of Jesus, took the cup, gave thanks, and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. And he says a second time, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. And here it is, do this in remembrance of me. For those of you that are here, if you'll take the package, you can just peel back the top there you'll find the bread. Just hold on to it for a moment. Ah, celebration of communion on Resurrection Sunday. Doesn't get any better than that. We hold on our hands a symbol, the body of Jesus Christ that was broken, just like the skin of that Passover lamb was broken, so the blood could be shed. Um, interesting, the, the, the skin, the body of Jesus broken in seven places. You ready? Let's count them. Uh, the hands, two. 
the really the wrists, the feet four, uh, the back from the whippings five, the crown of thorns impaled in his head six, the forehead is very vascular by the way, and the seventh to ensure his death the Roman soldier took that sword and pierced his side and out came two elements, blood and water, the two elements present at birth This is the birth of the bride from his side as the second and final Adam, the first Adam, Eve, taken from his side. This is a, I love this illustration. Uh, It's it's very exhortative for husbands. The wife was made from the rib of Adam, from his side, close to his heart, not from his head to be over him, and certainly not from his feet to be under them. That's, that's good marriage counseling right there. So too, with the second and final Adam, a bride is birthed from his side, the birth of the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Jesus Christ. And that was the seventh, the number of completion. He bled from his broken body, broken skin in seven places. And that's why he can say, it is finito. (laughs) Chalas in Arabic. Don't you love the Arabic language? You just spit on everybody and you're speaking Arabic. It's finished. It's finished, period. Completed. Seven. It's done. Nothing you can do to add to it or take from it. It is finished. That's what we're celebrating here today. Would you partake of the bread with me? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, Lord. (laughs) How could we ever begin to thank you enough for what you did for us? As we now, in remembrance of you, celebrate the communion. Lord, thank you for your body that was broken. And as we'll now celebrate your blood that was shed in our stead. Lord, thank you for paying the price in full. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, we love you so much. And we thank you so much. And Lord, before we partake together of the cup, I just want to pray. I just have a sense that this is for someone here today, maybe more than one here today or watching online. You have been crushed under the weight of the guilt and the condemnation of sin. And Jesus says, I want you to remember, because it seems like you've forgotten that I've taken care of that. And though your sins be as scarlet, They are white as snow. I've removed them as far as the east is from the west. And I remember them no more. When I see you, precious one, I don't see your sin, our Heavenly Father would say. Instead of seeing your sin, I see my son who paid for that sin. Thank you, Lord. Luke goes on to write, likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, 
which is shed for you. Again, for those of you that are here, if you'll peel back the rest of the packaging, you'll have the cup. Just hold on to it for a moment. We're almost done. I appreciate your patience. This is so worth it, though, isn't it? Again, we hold in our hands a symbol represented in this cup, a symbol of the blood of the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, the Lamb of God that was shed for our sins, because there's no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. And remission is an important word, because in the Old Testament it was kufad in the Hebrew, it was just covered. In the New Covenant, the blood of the New Covenant, it's not covered, it's removed. The remission of sin, the removing of sin, the cleansing of sin. That's what this cup represents. Again, I would encourage you for second service, if you're able to stay or join us. I just I know, I don't hope, I know it's going to be an encouraging word. And I'll include myself in this because, man, sometimes the enemy just, I let him get away with it too. I have no one to blame but myself. He just builds this infrastructure of guilt and condemnation. And I always buy the lie. And I, and I, and I, and it always, the litmus test is it always distances you from the Lord because that's condemnation. Conviction draws you closer to the Lord. Condemnation distances you further from the Lord. And that's what Satan's strategy is. He'll do everything to distance you from the Lord. So now you believe Him, you've been deceived by Him, and you think that God's angry at you. Man, you you blew it, man. I know. You did that keyword again. I know. How many times have you asked for forgiveness? I know. I, I would, I'd lay low if I were you, man. I, I, you know, just give God some time to kind of cool down on this one. I mean, you even made a vow to Him. I'll never do it again. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. And then there, here you are. Never imagine for a moment that God is in heaven going, Are you kidding me right now? You did that again? I know. No. You think God's surprised when we sin? Could you imagine? God just, I can't believe JD just sinned again. That's it. That's it. I've had it up to here with him. (laughs) We view our heavenly father through the lens of our fallen earthly father. No. He's already paid for it. He's already accounted for it. He's already removed it. And we need not be crushed under the weight of that guilt and condemnation any longer than it takes us to get to the cross where it was paid for. And by the way, leave it there. Uh, I know what you do because you're a lot like me. You take it to the cross and you take it back. Oh yeah, you carry it with you. No, no, leave it here. I, I paid for it. What are you taking it back for? I, I, I paid for it. It's, it's finished. Leave it here. I got this. And we don't. It's finished. 
And that's what this cup represents, the blood of the new covenant. Would you partake with me? And when you're done, please stand. Capono, come on up. We'll close in prayer and close in song again. Appreciate your, your patience. I've been really looking forward to today for what I think would be deemed obvious reasons. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for fulfilling the Passover prophecy, Jesus. Thank you for giving us this to do in remembrance of you, because we do forget and get caught up in the busyness and the cares and the affairs of this life. We need to be reminded. It's a much needed reminder that we're saved by the blood that you shed in our stead. So thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. I just want to pray lastly for anyone who has never believed in you, that today they will put their trust in you, believe in you, and be saved. What a great day to have be the day, the day of salvation on this Resurrection Sunday. Lord, thank you for rising from the dead and defeating death once and for all. Oh, Lord, we can't wait, because we know that you're going to come back the same way that you went up when you catch us up. So, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Maranatha, in Jesus' name, amen.